The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're webcasting to you live from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders headquarters in Tarzana, California. It's Wednesday, so we are very excited about the lineup that we have for you here this morning. First, we are going to have Dr. Doreen Grampuche answering your questions during Ask Dr. Doreen. Then a little bit later on, we have an interview that we just taped this morning with Rick Strip Jr. He is the author of Mommy, I Wish I Could Tell You What They Did to Me at School Today. He became a close friend of Avante Aquendo's family and he's going to talk to us about the news that we got yesterday that the DNA match is there. We now know uh, that the remains that were found were a match for Avante. It's very sad news and Rick's going to talk to us a little bit about what it was like hearing that and what it was like during the search with the family and uh, and what, what we can take away from this. Then we have Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. We have two really incredible guests that are going to be with us today. A fantastic blogger dad, because this is Blogorama during January. He's going to be with us talking about uh, dad issues, which we always appreciate hearing. And then we've got a wonderful special education attorney who's going to be here with us talking about some things that we need to go as we approach IEP season. So all of that and ever so much more during the next two hours as we take on autism from a 360-degree perspective. I want to remind you that the whole show, whole show end-to-end -end is meant to be interactive. We hope that you will participate with us with your thoughts, feelings, concerns, and suggestions. And most importantly, the questions that you need to have answered. So Emily's going to show you some of the different ways that you can participate here with us. I'll remind you that our home site, www.autism-live.com, is a great way to watch the show live. When you go there, you'll see a desktop with a computer screen. Click on the little triangle. That will allow you to watch either the live show or a recently recorded live show. Next to that is a long, skinny white box. This is one of the easiest easiest ways that you can interact with us. It's totally free, totally interactive. Put your cursor there. You don't have to log in. We don't take any of your personal information and there is no cost. Type whatever you would like there, hit enter, and it will appear here on my screen so that I can be asking your questions of Dr. Grampuche or any of our guests in almost real time. There is about a minute lag to it, so be aware of that. All right. We really hope that you will participate, but it's time for us to start with Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grandpiche is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grandpiche. Dr. Grandpiche. Dr. Doreen Grandpiche. Dr. Doreen Grandpiche is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. 
Welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen. We have Dr. Doreen Grampuche. She's here with us every Wednesday morning. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. I'm, I was sad when I walked in today and yeah. was listening to the um, other news. Yes, we taped an interview with Rick Strip that we're going to play a little bit later on at the end of the hour. And uh, we spent a little time talking about this. And what I didn't say to you is as I was driving in this morning, I said, I'm so grateful that today is Wednesday because I don't know about the rest of you, but I need an autism expert in my life today. Oh, okay. You know, because yeah, yeah, this I is know. an emotional time and it's hard for all of us. We, you know, I, I don't pretend to know what the family is going through, but it's personal uh, on a level to all of us. Uh, it's, it's one of our own. And I think it hits close to home and we think, what can I do with my own child? Yeah. And what can I do to prevent this for all children? Right. Uh, and one of the things that I was really overwhelmed about, we filmed a little thing yesterday and I, and I really said, this is, this is something that didn't have to happen. This is a tragedy. Of course, we're talking about, for those of you who just tuned in, we're talking about Avante Aquendo and the fact that his remains were identified yesterday. It's a very tragic end to a very tragic story. But yeah. he walked away from his school. He was in school. His parents thought that he was safe and he was well cared for and he walked out the door. It wasn't the first time that he had eloped. Yeah. Um, so they had prior knowledge that he was capable of doing that. And I said yesterday, this is tragic because it could have been avoided if the right training had been in place and people had implemented that training. And what astounded me was the outpouring of people last night on my personal email and my personal Facebook saying, this reminds me of my child and you're talking about this as though it didn't have to happen. I need to have more information. So I'm so grateful that you're here this morning and I, I want to take a couple of minutes here at the start of the show to have you talk to us about bolting, wandering, eloping, all these things that we call when our children leave where they're supposed to be. Of course, I always remind everybody that we can't give child-specific advice ever in this environment. Right, right. Um, but Dr. Grampish, right. this is a really, it's a, it's a terrible thing that has happened. It really is. I mean, it's terrible for everyone. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that the, the family, I can't even imagine the devastation that you go through with something like this. But I also think, Shannon, that the people at school who were taking care of him or supposed to be there for him are also probably feeling pretty awful right now. I would imagine. You know, these things happen, accidents are never meant to happen and can always be avoided with some precaution. I'm, you know, who knows who at that moment wasn't paying attention and what's going on in their own life or, you know, you can't. But the truth is that it is a scenario that ha happens way too often and I think um, if you mentioned that it was like the fourth time that he yeah. walked out. You know, this sort of thing happens so often in schools around the country, it is shocking. And the obviously people who are in these schools know that our children can't um, notify, express themselves, that they have a tendency to just wander off, they're yeah. curious, that they don't have fear that they don't understand safety. So I think more than the fact that just a, a lot of training should have occurred, what's more shocking, I suppose, to me is that there wasn't an alarm system in place mm -hmm. or a lock. Um, most of the time, so here for our viewers who, if you are concerned for your own child, you need to make 100% sure that your school is safe. And by that, I mean a few different things. One is, I mean, you know, a lot of schools now, because I have therapists who go to the schools all the time, 
um, will require your, you to check into the office. In fact, you can't really gain access to the inside of the school unless you go to the office and um, get your name signed in and get a badge or whatever yeah. it is. But uh, what's much, much, much more important and much, much more likely than a person coming in, you know, they do all of that so that they can prevent someone from coming in and abducting a child. Right. Okay. Is that more likely or is it more likely for our children to run away, which I think often the second one is more uh, true prevalent. And so it's important that the schools have a lock system on all the gates, on all the doors, and that either the um, staff have uh, card, magnetic card access mm -hmm. or key access or uh, combination lock access, and that's it. Yeah. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, for, for I know that for the purposes of fire safety, there have to be there has to be readily accessible exits mm -hmm. which of course can be in place and if there in other words nine out of ten doors can be locked if one is left open mm -hmm. for fire safety now the fire doors have to have an alarm on them right. that is just imperative yeah. um, if just think about how simple this is in this particular case had there been an alarm yeah everybody would have been informed that a child is walking out and shouldn't be. Had there been an alarm, it's just that simple. Yeah. It's really, so to begin with, I think that is the, the number one thing that gives yeah. parents a, a sort of ease of mind in terms of safety. Right. And then of course, there's a lot that can be done with training. Um, I think it's a little bit more, you know, or, and we can talk a little bit later in the show on how we actually train um, safety skills it's a big uh -huh. big thing for us but the issue is more that I think it's a matter of funding and educational budgets because a lot of the aides and people that work who work in these um, schools and or um, day centers uh, you know living centers whatever all the different types of homes and residences schools day programs all of these they're so um, they're not they're not trained they are paid minimum wage yeah. um, they usually have very difficult lives they're working very very long hours in some cases they have very weird schedules they have sort of schedules that are similar in some cases to nursing schedules so they go like three days straight long hours and then two days off very strange yeah. schedules because they have to be there overnight some right. in some cases but even school personnel aides I mean they're paid minimum wage yeah. and these guys I can't, t I can't even count the number of times I've gone to do an observation of a child in the school who's supposed to have an assigned aide, mm -hmm. and the aide is outside having a smoke or oh. asleep in their car oh. or whatever, you know, completely yeah. not there. And that happens all the time, Shannon. Yeah. It happens all the time. And I think it's just a, a quality control issue. And... Um, it's so important. We have yeah. to we have to be more careful with these types of situations. So, at the very minimum, if there's an aide present, um, then obviously, and and if the ratio, I mean, there's so many different things. You know, put a lock, put an alarm, yeah. make sure there's an aide there who isn't watching over 25 kids. Is right. only responsible for maybe five kids or 10. Right. And then you know is is trained to keep their eye on this. And I'm very sad to say, but truthfully, when something like this happens, now, of course, people will be alarmed and there will be possibly better training, better, 
for some time. And yeah. then, you know, a year from now, we'll forget about it again. And then people will go back to whoever got away with it will get away with it. I mean, this is just how things are. It's very annoying. It's very aggravating. The first time that I realized that I took note of the importance of this type of thing was, gosh, it would have been like 19, I want to say, 89, 88. And I was at that time doing... Um, I was at UCLA, but I was also doing a, a postdoc or an internship at the Help Group, mm -hmm. and they had several homes, and I was programming, doing the behavioral programming for their homes, and these were like uh, you know young, uh, like older children and young ad young adolescents or mm -hmm. almost teenage, and there was one little boy uh, who would often run away. And, you know, this the help group is a very good organization. Yeah. They had all sorts of alarms on every door. They had trained the local police. I mean, the, all the neighbors knew. It was, you know, there's so many things you can do to make sure right. that there's second-level safety, third-level safety, right. and so on. Um, and I, it made me realize at that time, oh, my gosh, this is critical. Like, this is yeah. such an important issue. Yeah. So going back to, you know, not wanting to just put all of this on the school, but honestly, there's so much that they could have done. And second, and, you know, from the perspective of a parent who's really cautious or, or worried about this, uh, right now, uh, and for many years, there have been these watches or bracelets that actually act as like a low jack type yes. device so that you just place it on your child, your child cannot remove it. Yeah. They cannot remove it. They also have ankle bracelets. Yeah. And um, this then allows you at any given time to look and find the location of your child. Yeah. I, I often say if it's safe for us, and I don't want to compare this, but I, I've thought about this for my own children. You know, sure. we're always worried about our kids and when they're, especially when they're young and, and in this world. Yeah. I've always said, like, how do we place microchips in animals, but we don't even, and it's safe. Right. Why do we not do something like that? I know I, it sounds very, like, 1984-ish, but why not? I, I agree with you, and I know that people, there are critics who say, oh, my goodness, you know, this is horrible. Uh, if it were optional, and if, if, you're, if this is a real risk with your child, I don't think anybody would disagree with you. I think when your child is eloping, you're desperate to ensure that your child is going to stay alive. Right. And right. that is infinitely more important than all the, you know, personal anonymity, you know, chipping. Absolutely, chipping. absolutely. I mean, we chip pets. Yeah. And because we care so much and we don't want them to get lost. And the idea that there some technology like that could keep a child safe, I think any parent who has a child with lopes would be thrilled to be able to do that. Oh, and the technology definitely exists. It has existed for many years because the first time I saw these uh, sort of watch uh, things that mm -hmm. have a, a tracking device, was before the internet age. I mean, right now, you know, it's so yeah. easy to put a tracking device on your phone, on your car, yeah. on everything. And uh, for our children, the technology definitely exists. And it's, it's very, very important to actually consider these things because in most cases, from what I'm told, if you are able to physically locate the individual within the first hour or so, or two hours, yeah. actually, 
there's a much, much larger chance of recovery and, and safety than, than later. Absolutely. I think they call it the golden window yeah. of opportunity to find a child. Well, I, I all of this is so helpful in talking about those locks because parents can go to their schools today and say, what is in what place? What are you doing? What are you doing What, what happens? Right, right. At, you know, what are the possibilities? And walk the perimeter. See if the doors are locked. See if the gates are locked. I think this is, you know, great super advice. But as you said, there's another side of this. So I want to take a break and come back and talk a little bit about how Training. we work yeah. long term. Because working on elopement, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not something that you fix overnight. No, it's not. But it's something that you can work on so that Definitely. over time you can Absolutely. lessen uh, how often this is likely to happen. So we're going to take a break and come back with Dr. Grandpa Shane. Of course, we'll be taking your questions as well. Stick with us. Hello, fellow activists. Let's talk about step six, live in gratitude and give back. Have you ever noticed that it's impossible to feel sorry for yourself when you focus on your blessings? I have an exercise for you. Take out five pennies. I want each penny to represent something you're thankful for today. Now I bet not one of those pennies represented something material, but that every one of them represented someone you love or a moment you shared with that someone. Go through Standing knee deep in a river and dying of thirst. There's a song by Kathy Matea called Standing Knee Deep in a River and Dying of Thirst. Sometimes we need to look at the river of blessings flowing underneath us, and then we see we're not so thirsty after all. Once you realize how fortunate you are, you can freely give back to others, and there's nothing that will make you feel more fortunate than giving to those less fortunate than you. So start your day with an attitude of gratitude. And until next time, keep the faith. Welcome back to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. We have with us Dr. Doreen Grampache, a true expert in the field of autism and a visionary in the field of autism. And you've been talking with us today, giving us some real life practical right. things, tools that we can use in light of this Avante Equendo tragedy, tragedy that we've all been mourning the last 24 hours, things that we can do to ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. We've already talked about what kinds of technology has to exist, excuse me, in the school but there you also mentioned that we can be working on the behavior uh, some people call it bolting some people call it wandering some people call it elopement but when our kids leave a space that they were supposed to be in and and go right so the whole um, concept of elopement has to do with the fact that our kids don't really recognize safety mm -hmm. or lack of safety so they have no um, first of all, they don't, you know, when you're born, obviously, typically developing kids, we don't have fear. And fear is a learned thing. And um, it's either conditioned or it's learned. In other words, it either you either take it up by classical conditioning, where, for instance, you will hear loud sound and it's associated with an object, and the loud sound will startle you. And then that object that's associated with it becomes uh, 
causes a reaction in you and, and becomes conditioned as a fear object and then you avoid that because of the loud sound being so noxious. Okay. So it's kind of a classical conditioning. Or it's by operant conditioning where it's learned and you will uh, have a consequence that is punishing. For instance, you put your finger on fire and mm -hmm. it burns. Right. And then it is painful, so you won't do that ag again because you're immediately punished. And so it's very important to understand those two things first, because when I start to talk about how we teach fear, mm -hmm. it becomes a touchy subject for people. Right. But you have to realize that in real life, when you are aware of natural stimuli and natural consequences of your actions in the environment, you, are, you learn fear. Right. The environment uh, teaches the it environment to you. The environment teaches you fear. I mean, yeah. the very, very, uh, there was a, a psychologist I often refer to, Watson. We all know of Watson very well in, in the field of psychology. And his initial experiments showed that you, know, you could place a, a snake mm -hmm. in front of an infant, and the infant would just think it's cute and want to play with it. Right. And um, uh, if you stood behind the infant and made a very loud banging, like clapping sound, then the infant would be startled and then would become afraid of the snake. Okay. So it's a very, very, you know, easy, easy process. So now take that reasoning of teaching fear, because really what you're trying to do when a child elopes is to teach them that two things. First, you want to teach them that a anything outside of the periphery that they are in is unsafe okay and you don't want them to feel that at all times because when is it safe it's safe when they're with an adult right so okay. it's unsafe if you're alone okay and it's safe if you're with an adult and that those two things have to be taught kind of together because if you teach a child it's just unsafe, then you're going to develop sort of an agoraphobic child, like right. someone who really doesn't want to leave the periphery. Right. But if you at the same time teach the child, no, it's okay, but you have to go with me or with these with an adult, then uh, the chi our children are very intelligent and they will learn that, right. okay, so I can go out, but I always need to make sure there's an adult with me. Okay. So now that portion of it, Teaching that aspect of it is pretty easy. You know, we do this with our kids even if they want to go to a um, playground uh, equipment or part of a playground, we will not allow them to go unless they have another child go with them. Okay. Just as one of the tools to have them interact, just as an example. So let's say a child is, we know it's a child who wants to really elope and likes to run out. Okay, very, very simple. You have adult, an adult standing near the gate first and the child wants to go out and you uh, have the door locked and you will model for the child or individual adult to go get the adult, okay. hold them by the hand and then they can go out. And if you do that a few times, maybe 10 times, the, the adult or child that you're working with will identify and learn that, oh, I can't go out alone. I can go out with someone else. And so the reinforcement is you get the adult and you get to allow the access exactly. to the thing you want. Exactly. Okay. So that portion you teach and that's a separate step. Okay. The other step is teaching them never to leave alone. Right. And, and the only way you can do that is to teach them some level of fear okay. when they do elope alone. Now I had some families in the past where I've had like a child eloping 
many, 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 many times, and it's just so scary. Yeah. And the easiest thing I could tell the family was, it's very, very simple. You hide outside, you just hide somewhere around the house, and the minute the child takes off, you jump out, you scare the child, you yell at your child, you do whatever you want that is uh, fear-evoking or in right. some ways punitive, right. and uh, you take the child back in. Okay. And then at a different time, when the child is not attempting to elope, you actually take the child by the hand and go walk. Okay. So you're teaching the discrimination. It is good. We can go out together, but you cannot go out alone. Okay. And that is, it, it's sort of, you know, it's such a natural thing. I, when I was, uh, when, I'm, when my kids were younger, I remember one time, uh, my little one, Charlie, was, uh, I don't even remember how this came about, but we had, we were at like a parking of, of Rite Aid or something, you know, and she came out of the van, we had a minivan, she came out of the van and she was trying to play with me, and I think she would have been maybe two or something, uh -huh. so she was hiding behind the minivan. Oh. And I am looking around oh. and I'm about to lose my mind because right. I can't see her, you know, it's like, where is she, where is she, and I'm like, and then it, um, uh, the car next to me were parents, obviously, and noticed that I was in panic mode. Right. And then they were like pointing and saying she's hiding behind the van, and I sort of saw her and obviously yelled at her, you know, right. because I was in such panic mode. And uh, she remembers that even yeah. today. Wow. And, you know, but she realized two things, I think, during that time. One was, you know, it's not a good idea to scare mommy when I'm outside or something. Right. And the other thing, and, and you know, that's a certain level of empathy. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think she learned uh, just to make sure that I know of her whereabouts. Right. And that is a really important lesson for our kids. So, you know, and, and I can't tell you, Shannon, the number of kids that I've known over the years or families that I've known over the years where their child repeatedly elopes and is brought back by the police or repeatedly elopes to the backyard where there's an uncovered swimming pool. Yeah. I mean, I've lost four kids to swimming pools. I mean, it is horrible, and this yeah. is one of the most important things we have to do. You, as you know, our staff, our ARG team especially, they do a lot of work on safety and teaching yes. our kids how to identify strangers and what to do if a stranger approaches you and so on. We also have trainings now for uh, firefighters and police that we, we do in order to help them identify these types of situations. But as a parent, it's so critical to teach our kids yeah. to have a certain level of fear towards these, yeah. uh, you know, these situations that can be very, very dangerous. But we should be clear, because we'll get critics otherwise, that yes. we're not talking about terrorizing the child right. or electric shock therapy right. not at all. or harming the child. Not at all, right. It doesn't take that to create fear. Not at all, absolutely. I mean, our kids uh, do react to uh, more than anything else, I think they react to being startled. Yes. Uh, they, every child has a different thing. One of our kids we knew hated water, yeah. so dad would uh, wait outside, and if he was running onto the street or something, dad would sprinkle him with water, right. and he hated that. I mean, it really just does have to do with it. It is, however, I mean, let's be very clear about this. Um, there's no positive way of doing this. Fear is fear. Fear is a negative. Uh, emotion right. and from my perspective uh, 
curiosity is going to get all of our kids to want at some point to go out. Sure. And they are in, in situations where our kids do not understand uh, safety. They do not understand they can be hit by a car. Right. They can be stolen by an individual. They can be uh, fall in a river and, you know, they don't understand these things that uh, are dangerous, then there is no other way to prevent them from uh, going and doing these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think about when Jem was little, probably three, and he was still, we were working on uh, elopement because he had done it a couple of times. I was in a, uh, a store, a big store, and he made a beeline. There was one of those doors in the back of the store that was a fire exit. Exit, mm -hmm. So it had that alarm on it, and right. he was somebody who he still doesn't like huge, loud noises. And he hit that yellow and black bar because it meant nothing to him. And I was, I was already yelling, but mm -hmm. you know that mm -hmm. meant nothing to him either. He hit the bar, and all the alarms in the store went off, and he jumped back five feet, and that was the end of that. That's for it. Him. Fear is very fast conditioning. So. Yeah. And he, he never, never did that again. Exactly. He never exactly. did it again. And so it could be something as simple as an air horn that prevents the child an from An air horn is actually a spectacular idea. It's a very, very good idea to do something like that. That's right. But I just wanted to point out for people, because I think a lot of times people get this old idea that all of ABA is punitive and the kids are getting hurt. Right, right. It's not. Right. And in this circumstance where you're going to use a strategy like that, you're going to use it very mindfully That's and carefully. Right. That's right. And the child doesn't get hurt by it but we instill a response where they that they don't like. Right, and I mean, I'll ask you, Shannon, why, let's say, why do you not um, jump off a cliff? Yeah, well, I'm afraid of heights, first okay, of all. Well, <laughs> why, do you, why do you not, like, you know, jump into the Niagara River or Falls yeah. or something? Fear. It's because, because we know yeah. from a physics perspective, from a logical perspective, that you could die. Yeah. We, we know we could die because it's dangerous. Yeah. Our kids don't have that comprehension. Yeah. So to them, when they see a river that might be going very fast, they don't think, oh, this could be dangerous, like yeah. any other typical child might think of a certain age. They think, this could be fun. Yeah. You know, And so it is very, very important that they are taught to avoid that, yeah. at least until the point that they can differentiate what is fun and what's dangerous. Okay. Really important information. I'm so glad you're here today to talk about these things with us. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and answer some of your questions that you've put in on the live feature, so stick with us. Welcome back to Smarty. It's January and a whole new year has gone by. To commemorate that, Autism Live and Smarty have decided to give you a template to make your very own time capsule. The materials you'll be needing are glue, a jar, photos, keepsakes, pen, and a template you can print from facebook.com slash autismlive. Here's the template that I printed out from our Facebook page. Depending on the skill of your child, they can do this independently or you're going to help them fill out all the questions. Once you have finished filling out the time capsule sheet, I've left two spaces on the top, one for a school photo, one for a family photo. Feel free to glue an image there.
Now that I've glued the photos onto my sheet, now I'm gonna grab my jar and start filling it up with all the things I would wanna remember from the year that just passed. I would say include photos, mementos, toys, things that are gonna be really important to you at this time and moment that you'll be excited to see later in the future. Once you're done filling up your jar with all the things that were important to you for the year 2013, you're gonna wanna seal it up. And it's up to you for how long you wanna keep it locked up. Time capsules are a great way to remember where you have been and where you're going. So I hope you really enjoy this activity and until next time, craft on guys. Can you see me flying by your side? Welcome back to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. We have Dr. Doreen Grampshay here with us and she's answering your questions that you guys have written in. We had a question on the live feature uh, that says, I'm an adult with Asperger's syndrome. Many years ago I was told I hallucinate when under stress. What I want to ask is why this only happens to some on the spectrum and not others and also why does it happen? That's a really good question. Um, okay. Hallucinations don't occur with ASD. Okay. So that's, let's start right there. Yeah. If you are actually hallucinating with the technical definition of hallucination, like the real definition of a hallucination, in other words, someone has diagnosed you and said you are hallucinating, then that is not ASD, that is not Asperger's. Hallucinations only accompany a very set number of things, for instance, schizophrenia, as well as various other medications that may cause hallucinations or drugs or various other types of biochemical uh, changes that may result in hallucinations, um, various types of tumors, etc., but not ASD. Okay. So that is your number one answer, first of all. Now, secondly, uh, the other thing that I think you should consider is that we all, when we are, especially when we are under stress, but at all times, we hear voices. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are hallucinations. Okay. We all have an internal voice and an external voice, like we will talk to others, and when you think, uh, thinking is very much like hearing a voice inside your head. Um, it is, however, your own, and it is to a large, it's not necessarily always positive. It could be conditioned to be a negative voice, mm -hmm. but it is, uh, it is a familiar voice. Let's say there are not numerous voices unless you've been traumatized. In some cases, when you have abusive um, upbringing, for instance, you will have an, uh, the voice of an abusive parent in your head and so on. But what's very interesting is that sometimes individuals um, misunderstand mm -hmm. the typical voice in their heads as being a hallucination. And that is very, very different. Okay. So, you know, I think that it would be probably a good idea for this viewer to actually see an expert, which would be, I would suggest, a psychiatrist and or a psychologist who has some experience in schizophrenia and um, autism. But also, if you are on medications, you may want to see a psychiatrist. And this is something that a professional should help you sort out. Okay. All right. 
great advice. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, we had a follow-up um, on the question that we had last week. Somebody had written in from England and wanted to know what affect mm -hmm. meant because it's the, the she has a, a new baby, but she's studying to be a BCBA, hoping mm -hmm. to be a BCBA. And uh, somebody did a follow-up on it saying, what is an expected affect for a child on the spectrum? Uh, understanding that there is a variable, but what is usual and when do we know if a diagnosis might be incorrect? Thank you. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I love that question because historically a lot of people have thought that kids with autism have very flat affect. And this isn't true. Flat affect meaning they don't really show emotion. Right. And I don't think that's true. I, you know, and I, that's, th there's no point in going back historically, but I, I think there, there was some flat affect in kids when we, when we were working with kids back in the 70s and 80s, but things have changed. Autism is a very, very different, it's molded into a completely different thing over the years. Not completely different, but quite different. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say is that uh, most of the kids that I see now have very good affect. They're very attached to their parents. Mm -hmm. um, they have, uh, they laugh when you do something funny. They're sad when they see you become sad. Um, a lot of the times kids have empathy. There are sometimes kids who are very involved in their own um, intrinsic universe. They're so like, you know, very, very just uh, kind of egocentric and it's not, I don't want to say that in a bad way, they just don't really have the ability to see other people's perspectives and therefore their own perspective is what takes over and then in those cases their affect becomes a little bit uh, flat because they're little, they become egocentric mm -hmm. and so the world is about them, not right. other people. But it is actually a question that I often ask at intake, like how does your child react if they see you upset, if they see a sibling upset or so on. So, um, you know, that's, that's that portion of the question. The other portion has to do with how do you know if a diagnosis, so, so you know, to be clear on the first part, I think kids with autism have pretty common, commonly pretty normal affect. Okay. With, um, when you look at a diagnosis, it's very hard to base uh, you know, to think that your diagnosis might be wrong just because your child has affect, has really appropriate affect and mm -hmm. they said that autism shouldn't. Right. Is, okay. Affect should not really be a, play a big role in diagnosis. Okay. The diagnosis has to do with uh, just skill delays, really. It has to do with the fact that the child is delayed in language and communication, is therefore delayed in a lot of social aspects of behavior, um, that the child is more interested in sort of rote repetitive types of stereotypical behaviors rather than interacting typically. So when you're looking at kids, they're not developing play, they're not developing communication with peers. You know, those are, it's never been hard for me to diagnose autism because I see it as such a, first of all, I mean, I know kids with autism better than right. typically developing kids, but it's just, it is, it's not a mild thing. It affects a lot of different systems and it's, it causes alarm and concern in regards to many different uh, areas of development. Okay, so if we were to say that having a flat affect could end up being a part of Autism. a diagnosis, but having a, an affect that was typical would not disqualify you from getting an autism diagnosis. That is the perfect way to say it. Okay. That is a wonderful say. Yeah, so f flat affect could also, though, 
lead, uh, you know, become a part of a diagnosis, many other diagnoses. Okay, good to so know that. So if as you well. have flat affect, if you have very flat affect, or a child has flat affect, I would be concerned. Okay. All right, good to know. I love that. Okay, here's one that I need your help with because I'm not. I don't even remember what the jargon is. So, how much is usually approved by a district to conduct an IEE? I don't remember what an IEE is, unless you're no talking idea. about an IEP. Um, and do they give a cap in hours, or does it vary? And maybe they're asking about uh, doing. Maybe what you're actually asking is to do an FBA, because a lot of times we'll recommend that if somebody's having a problem with their child, they're getting notes coming home. That you know, ask for an FBA. Yeah, uh, I have no. I've never heard of an IEE. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad. guessing that it's an IEP. Okay. Um, and then. So the question is... How much time is usually approved by the district to conduct an IEP? And do they give a cap in hours or does it vary? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It can't be that they're asking about an IEP. I think the individual is probably asking for like an FBA or maybe an assessment. Yeah. I'm not sure. There isn't, there, the district's not allowed, just to generally answer this, mm -hmm. uh, the district is not, legally it's not appropriate or allowed to put a cap on this sort of thing. It has to do with your child's needs. Okay. So if your child has multiple, multiple issues and um, they all need to be assessed, then the district will have to fund different things. Like typically I think we will get something like I'm not even sure districts fund FBAs anymore, uh, functional behavior assessments, because they'll do them themselves. They, ha they usually have someone who will do it. But if, they, if we are funded, we will probably get somewhere between around 16 hours for an FBA. I don't remember now. Just maybe eight hours to conduct it, eight hours to observe and write data and write a report. I'm not sure. Uh, that sounds like pretty much typical. Um, on the other hand, other assessments are completely different, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, districts don't fund other assessments, insurance companies do, okay. um, and other assessments, you know, you might have an IQ test or a cognitive uh, um, test that might last two days. Yeah. You might have language testing that's half an hour, so it's very, hugely variable, and depending on what the needs of the child are, the district has to accommodate. Yeah, and I will say too, in case there's another component to this question, um, if you've requested to have an IEP for your child and they've been doing the assessment, there are state-by-state -state requirements about they can't drag it on forever. They have to do that within a set amount of time to accomplish it so that your needs are met. They can't say, oh, well, we're going to do the assessments and we'll get to it next year. They can't do that. It is state by state, you would want to talk to a special education attorney. Most of them will give you a free consultation for a half hour, an hour. You could ask those kinds of questions of a, a special education attorney in your area or also um, check with your local support group and ask somebody else about, you know, what are the rules? How much time after I've asked for something in writing do they have before they have to deliver it to me? Because that's good information to know. And advocates especially. Yes. Sometimes attorneys are very busy or more expensive. Mm -hmm. Advocates are fabulous. I mean, advocates know a lot more actually in a lot of cases because they really study on all the rules and they know what's going on. And I really, really do recommend that you, um, if you have any questions, you know, your choices are to read all the material, which is a lot of material, or to have, find a really knowledgeable advocate. Yeah. A lot of times parents who have been successful with their own children provide advocacy services yeah. and they're very, very helpful. You know, uh, Ariva Martin from 
the Special Needs Network actually has a program where she takes parents and helps them to become advocates, but the deal is that then they need to turn around and help other parents. Yeah, that's true. It's terrific. really a remarkable program, and that's the Special Needs Network. Love that. Um, but in any case, uh, moving on, I love this question. I'm sure that, you know, they're not loving their experience of it, but uh, the person writes, help, my three-year-old daughter throws everything on the floor. What should I do? <clears throat> she thinks it's fun. <laughs> yeah. Right? It is fun. We've all been, we've all, <laughs> well, of is course fun. it is. Especially if mom has to bend over and pick it up and gets exasperated. Mm -hmm. Woohoo! That's yeah. really exciting. Yes, it's tough. That is very, very tough. Yeah, and stopping it is a little bit tough as well because you really, it's one of those things that you, I mean, here we go again, it's a behavior, you want to reduce the behavior, and so we're going to try and look at antecedents we can modify mm -hmm. and consequences we can modify, and in terms of consequences, uh, you know, when she throws an object, there are basically two consequences that you can should consider. One is kind of just being punitive about it, not making sure that your child kind of understands that that's not okay. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we just, we don't do that. It's funny, we, we get so tired that we forget to just tell our kids, no, that's not okay. Uh, but that's very important because you know your child might start to understand that right. and the second thing is the typical procedure for throwing is overcorrection, which basically requires the child to be like let's say she throws something and you will place you will then go in the location where she threw um, and you will dump out like five more things so let's say five blocks okay. then now you will uh, physically uh, prompt the child to pick up the object and bring it back but then also pick up five other objects one by one and bring them back so it's kind of it is still a punitive procedure because it involves uh, forcing the child to do additional work right in other words instead of you picking it up all the time you will need to have your child start picking it up but you're gonna have your child pick up more right. than just the one so you're gonna and suck the fun out of it basically correct, is what you're gonna correct. do <laughs> and it involves what's called positive practice right it's just an interesting way of saying you know it's a repeated practice of bringing the object back so that instead of throwing it they will bring it back nevertheless overcorrection does work okay. the other side of it is an antecedent control procedure which is blocking yeah. and that means that you would need to be present and make sure that you do not you know you're there to prevent the child from throwing to begin with now that's hard because obviously the child will have access to a lot of different things um, but I would say, you know, you ha if you do both sides, so like you pr try to be there as much as possible and prevent it, and on the other end, when it occurs, um, do a an overcorrection procedure, you will stop the throwing. Um, overcorrection is uh, important that you know how to do it correctly. So you should either get a professional who can advise you and help you, or you can also, I think, I would, I believe we would have a, a module on how to do overcorrection on IBT and so you can go on IBT view that module for just that one module and learn it and um, that will help you a lot. And that's I behavioral training. Because I would yes. yeah, dot com, yeah. I would imagine that there are things about it like keeping your face neutral. Yeah, it's very important that you don't engage in a lot of attention giving behavior okay. and so on and again it depends on 
why the child is obviously you want to do an you know functional analysis and figure out why the child is throwing but I have seen this behavior quite often and and to be honest with you most of the time the child actually finds uh, joy in many aspects of this one is the throwing itself which you're going to try to prevent and good I'm going to come back to this in a sec but the other side of it is sometimes the child enjoys your reaction to it which is often picking it up bringing it back and that's sort of humorous now the other thing is on the side outside of this you would maybe want to replace the the urge to throw mm -hmm. sometimes this exacerbates things for our kids and sometimes it really does help as a replacement behavior so you know get your child one of those cute little basketball mm -hmm. inside sponge basketball things mm -hmm. you know and have the child aim and yeah. throw and play that um, so that you're containing the behavior of throwing in that appropriate setting and in other in the normal setting you're okay. sort of preventing it so you're redirecting it making it something functional right, i like right, that i like right. that a lot okay last question here uh my son is five and has major sensory issue with his mouth and still chews slash sucks a pacifier which is causing speech problems how do i remove the pacifier without causing other problems for him removes a pacifier but he'll get over it he will get over it okay I mean you can do you can fade things off or you can expose him to a sudden so one of the things you know you can either remove the pacifier and then yes he will get upset but then he will overcome it or you can certainly replace the pacifier but at this point I don't know that you want to because you don't really want something in his mouth all the time you could potentially replace it with gum um, which you would then chew but then get rid of um, and if you want to shape away the use of the pacifier then uh, you can start to cut very small chunks of the pacifier very very small so the the tip of the pacifier you will like just take a small piece off okay. then two days later you take another small piece off and then before you know it it'll be small enough where your son won't even like it anymore okay Interesting. That would never have occurred to me. Uh, okay. Well, and so it was, since that was so quick, I've got time for one more. Sure. My 12-year-old is still struggling with shoe tying. Help. Mm. Oh, gosh. There's a really good... Uh, I forget the name of it, but that that's just... So, first of all, if your child doesn't have um, fine motor issues, so, like, of course, you need to make sure that from a fine motor perspective, he's able to do it. Okay then that is a procedure that you that is a t thing that you would teach through the procedure of backward ch uh, chaining which so, was our jargon yesterday okay great which is great great uh, so you do you would do it and first of all most kids find it easier to do the double hoops in a knot uh -huh. rather than one around the other okay so you will do all steps of this except the last step so you will make the double hoops and you will probably put them around and in and then all your son has to do is pull them tight okay and you'll do that until he's very good at that okay now then you will go to you'll make the double hoops and you'll pull them around and you'll just put the tip inside the knot and then your son has to pull it out and okay. tighten it and then he's very good at that and then you will now make the double hoops but and you'll go around but you won't actually make a knot 
and you'll prompt him and he will, and now he knows the other two steps, which is pulling it through and tightening it. Great. He's very good at that. And now you will just produce the double hoops and he does all the rest. Okay. And then you will produce one hoop and he will produce the other, and then you will do nothing and he'll do the whole thing. Awesome. So that's backward chaining. And awesome. Uh, you know, it, it takes practice. Yeah, and time, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. But worthwhile and a lot of reward. To do. You have a to give him a lot of reward okay. for every step that he masters. All right. Thank you so much for being oh, here. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's just always such a wonderful thing to hear you talk about these things thank because you. then we know what's possible. Oh, and yeah. That's empowering. So thank, thank you. you thank so you very much. much. Thank you. We are going to pause now and show you an interview that we conducted early this morning with Richard Strip, Sr., who is the author of the book, Mommy, I Wish I Could Tell You What They Did to Me at School Today. He became very close to Avante Aquendo's family as the, the search went when, uh, when he went missing. So uh, we'll show you that, and then when we come back, we'll be here for Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, two amazing guests, a dad blogger who we've had on the show before who's absolutely amazing. You're going to want to hear what this dad has to say. And then we have a special education attorney who's going to be getting us ready for the IEP season. So take a look. This is Richard Strip. Joining us on the phone right now is Richard Strip Sr. He is an autism advocate and the author of the book, Mommy, I Wish I Could Tell You What They Did to Me at School. He has been very much a part of the search for Avante and become very close to the family. So uh, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. We know this is a very difficult time for both you and your family and for the Aquendo family. And I want to start by asking you to tell us how you became involved in this story. Okay. Uh, first of all, thank you, Shannon, for, for having me on. And uh, I'm sorry that I was unable to talk to you yesterday. I was just too emotionally upset. Um, Myself, uh, like so many people around the country, uh, were following the story of Avante since um, October 4th uh, when he ran out of his school in uh, New York City. And um, I watched the news every night hoping that uh, he would be found and just keeping updated on it. And um, about 10 days after he initially ran off, one of the New York stations um, on the nighttime news, uh, one of the newscasters mentioned that you know, the family had set up a, a tent hoping that Avante would come back um, to the school. They set up a tent right in front of the school, and uh, they, were, they were having a family member there around the clock, 24-7, hoping that Avante would come back to the school, and then if and when he did, there would be somebody that he recognized. And the newscaster mentioned how cold it was getting, and these poor folks were, you know, staying in this tent all night long in the bitter cold, and um, they, could, they could probably make use of a motorhome. And uh, I happened to be off that week. Um, that was on a Monday, I believe. Um, I happened to be off that entire week. My wife and I had just uh, bought a motorhome the year before. Actually, I came out to be on your show in that motorhome, and um, I said to my wife, I said, you know what, Liz, I said, I'm going out there. You know, I got the week off. I'll just go out and offer my motorhome. And so that's what I did. I, I the, the following morning, Tuesday morning, I, I drove into uh, 
New York City, about an hour and a half from, from where I live, in New Jersey. And uh, when I got there, uh, I told the police uh, they were stationed there, uh, the purpose why I was there, and they shuffled some news media vehicles around, and then they put me right next to the tent. And I went and introduced myself uh, to the family, um, Danny, Alante's brother Danny. Um, was sitting there. I recognized him from the news. I walked over and I introduced myself and told him while I was there. Um, he shook my hand and went and got um, Abate's mom and dad. And they came over and were very grateful. And I took them into the motor home and said, hey, it's 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 here for your use. Uh, any friends of the family, you know, you sleep here, uh, eat, um, stay warm, just, you know, get away from it. It was a media circus, quite frankly. Um, just get away from the media or have interviews in there. And they did all those things, and, and that's how I uh, came to uh, got to know them. And in the week that I spent there, we just became very, very close. And you've stayed very close to them, and you've followed this story very closely. It's It's become personal to you, knowing the family. And, of course, yesterday we all got the news that the remains of the body that were found last week were, in fact, a match, a DNA match with Avante. It was crushing news. And I, I'm wondering if you could tell our viewers about what that was like for, for you and for your family hearing that. Um, just devastating, uh, Shannon. Uh, just, just absolutely devastating. Um, unfortunately, I had a gut feeling all along that this was not going to end well. Um, when I was doing my search effort, I searched every day that I was there, and um, a week after I brought the motorhome down, I had to leave because I had medical testing I had to get done. But, you know, m myself and my wife and friends and family, we went back um, numerous times to help search for Avante and just try to comfort the family. And um, I, I concentrated my search efforts along the banks of the river there because it was right across the street from the school. And uh, one of the things on all the news media that they, they show where Avanti is outside of the school, you know, they show the two clips. They show where he's running in the hallway, and then they show where he's running outside of the school. And when he disappears underneath some scaffolding there and some construction, seconds later, he reappears and he crosses the street um, towards the river. Um, he did not go. He went, if you're looking at the video, he went to his left. So I, um, all along, uh, but we were, we were all praying and all hoping, and, and the family, you know, remained hopeful. Um, one of the things I said to Daniel, who's the father, um, when I asked him, just well into it, it was probably a month or so into this, month and a half, and uh, I had a heart-to-heart -heart with him, and um, I asked everybody to leave us alone. We were in a different motorhome at that time, and I asked everybody to leave us alone. And I had a heart-to-heart -heart with him, and um, I asked him if he still believed that his son was still alive. And he said, yes, Rick, I, ha I have to believe that. And I said, oh, okay. I said, that's good, and we're all going to continue to pray. I said, but you, you know, with the amount of time that's passed, you have to prepare yourself um, in the event that he is not. And uh, we both started crying, and... Uh, so to answer your question, I, I was just devastated that yeah. uh, the, the young lady found some of the remains um, last Thursday at, um, I think it was about quarter after seven our time out here on the East Coast. And 
Avante's dad, uh, he was in Florida at that time. Uh, he went back to Florida. He's remarried and has a little nine-year-old boy in Florida. Um, he reached out to me Thursday night um, and just thanked me for any, everything, um, but did not mention um, what was going on at that time. And then, of course, the following morning, um, everybody knew. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we've been in touch. I spoke to him you know, last night, uh, to the dad. I spoke to... Uh, about his brother Danny um, yesterday morning, and they're just having a, a very, very difficult time. I mean, this yeah. is, it's, it's closure as far as um, where Avanti is, um, but it's certainly not closure uh, for them or for any of us um, about what happened to Avanti and, you know, uh, having Avanti there. Yeah, absolutely. And Rick, we should say that you are somebody who's worked extensively. Yeah, you absolutely did. Thank no, I and I appreciate you talking to us today. I know. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me, Rick? Can you hear me, Rick? We may have lost him. Um, but Rick is no stranger to the field of autism and was somebody who worked extensively in classrooms with individuals who are on the autism spectrum. Are you back with us, Rick? I don't think he can hear me, but um, and and Rick eventually left working in classrooms, and Hi, this is Rick. I can't he authored the book, Mommy, I Wish I Could Tell You What They Did to Me at School Today, an amazing book that we would encourage everybody to watch. If we can get Rick back, I'd like to talk to him about what parents can be doing to ensure Hello? that this... Do we have you, Rick? Yeah, what happened there? Yeah. Uh, we got disconnected, but that's okay. I've been telling our viewers about who you are and about your book and how you're no stranger to autism and what can happen in the schools and and how sometimes it's really devastating if we don't have people who are properly trained and compassionate and care about the safety of our kids. It can really be a disaster. And it's a, uh, I really want to encourage everybody to read your book, Mommy, I Wish I Could Tell You What They Did to Me at School. And I'm wondering, Rick, if you have any words of wisdom for us. I realize it's a hard day for everybody, but any words of wisdom for the parents out there who have special needs kids that are going to schools and how we keep them safe? Well, um, I talk about that in the book, of course. Um, one of the biggest things is uh, training. Um, anyone that's going to be in contact uh, with a special needs child um, should have, have very extensive and specific training um, in regards uh, to the, the, the child's uh, disabilities and their needs. Um, one of the things that I say in the book that you know, special needs children being placed in the care of untrained and unqualified staff is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Um, and uh, with, in Avante's case, um, I don't know at what point I got disconnected when I was talking to you, but uh, you know, in Avante's case, um, we're not sure yet uh, what happened as far as. Uh, him leaving the school. We, we know that uh, he was transitioning from one classroom to another. Um, there was six students, him being one of them, and uh, the, the reports that we got were that there was one teacher and one classroom aide. Um, by the way, I'd like to clarify for everybody, there's so much misinformation out there. Um, Avante did not have a one-on-one personal aide. Okay. Good for us to know. He did not. Rick, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I have one last question for you. We're getting a lot of conflicting reports coming in that 
Uh, I've raised a lot of questions in a lot of autism parents' minds, and you may not know any answers to this, but we're hearing that the underwear on the, the remains that were recovered did not match the underwear that his mom said that he had left home with that morning. Do you know anything about that? The only thing I know on that is uh, what was um, reported on the news. Uh, okay. uh, but there, there can be numerous explanations for that. that. That that does not necessarily mean that there was foul play involved. Yeah. Um, um, Vanessa did dress him in the mornings. But uh, as someone who has worked in a school uh, with children with autism for a very long time, we all know that um, many times these children have accidents um, as far as wetting their pants or soiling themselves. Yeah. And numerous times I personally have had to uh, use underwear that we had extra in the school um, or the nurse's office always had extra underwear if the okay. parents did not send in um, underpants. So, so right. if that is indeed the case, and that has not been verified totally yet that that is the case, but okay. if that is the case, that doesn't mean that there's foul play. Okay. Well, we appreciate you weighing in on that. Rick, thank you so much. And again, we want to encourage people to, for a hopeful message, uh, you know, I always say your book is not the easiest book to read because it's very frank, but it's an important book. Mommy, I wish I could tell you what they did to me at school today. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rick. Please give your best, uh, give our best to your family. And if you talk to the Equendo family, give them our regards as well. I certainly will. All right. Will. Take care. God bless everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be back with more Autism Live, and let's talk autism with Shannon and Nancy after these messages. Good morning, and welcome to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. I'm Nancy Allspot-Jackson. And I'm Shannon Penrod. And I say good morning. However, for us here, it is a very sad morning. Yes, it is indeed. Um, as, as you've heard and just saw in the interview that Shannon did, um, the remains of Avante Aquindo have been identified. And uh, while all of us in the autism community had held high hopes that Avante would be found alive, he has not been. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to say for me, um, and I know I speak for both of us, this story represents the sad, dark side of what it means to have a child with autism because from all appearances, um, this child who was a known wanderer, a loper, uh, was allowed to do so and was not kept safe. And that is just wrong. So um, it's a very, very sad day for our community. Mm -hmm. And I know many of us, uh, our prayers and our condolences are with the family. And more will be coming out on this story. They don't know. Uh, from what I understand, Shannon and you had some, have had some discussions about this. Yeah. They haven't confirmed that there was any abuse or foul play, but we don't know. We don't know. I mean, that's something that's, and we just talked with uh, Richard Strip about that, that, you know, there is a question about the underwear that he was wearing was not the underwear that his mom sent him to school with. But I, I appreciated that Rick was telling us 
this, that there could be other reasons for that other than foul play. So I, I'm going to hope for that because right. on top of everything else, I hope that there were, weren't other atrocities done to this child. And I do want to uh, address, somebody had just written in and said, do you know what classroom he was in? What we know at this time at what's been reported is that it, when he eloped, it was a period of time between classes when students were in the hallways, but he was in a group of six students that were with a teacher. There is an aide for those six students. We don't know if the aide was with them. Um, it is reported that there is videotape showing him going out the door past a security guard, and it was reported earlier this week that there was audio tape of the security guard talking to him. Now, we've heard from the, the, the lawyer that is associated with the family that he has not heard that audio tape yet, so okay. I don't know who that's coming from. So we'll see. I, I said yesterday, you know, we, we have the answer of where Avante Aquendo is, and it's a terrible answer, but the, the rest of the questions are still very much present, and there's a lot more to be revealed in this case. You know, I was surprised this morning because I did turn on the, the national morning news shows. No mention of this uh, in the, no mention. Uh, which, and I know it was all I could talk about yesterday yes. and, and all that I was, when I, you know, people called and if it was an autism family, that was exactly what we talked about. Right. And if it was somebody else and I said, well, you know, I'm just having a rough day. This has been devastating. I, you know, it just, it rocks you. It does. And, uh, and they were saying, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And I, and I thought, how can that be? Yeah. How can that be? Yeah. Um, but well, and for those of us who have children who have a history of wandering and elopement and have had it happen yeah. um, with our children, <clears throat> you know, we, we trust our educational system. We trust yeah. uh, procedures that are in place to safeguard these types of children on the spectrum. And evidently that trust was unfounded in this case. So. And if you're just joining us, I, I want to point out that in the first segment that we did today with Ask Dr. Doreen, she addressed this issue from a lot of different perspectives about what schools should have on board, what we as parents can ask for, and how we can attack this behaviorally. Right. Right. But safety measures, so I encourage you to go back and yeah. watch that. And, and uh, we interview. do, uh, a little later in the show, we have Eric Menyuk from yes. the firm of Newman, Aronson, and Vanneman, and he's got a seminar coming up on school districts and regional centers mm -hmm. that uh, is interactive. It's going to be great. So he's yeah. going to be talking a little bit more about that. But before that, we are going to have a really wonderful, awesome autism dad who is a blogger. This okay. is Blogorama Month here. Uh -huh. And so we're featuring blogs uh, by people on the spectrum or about things that have to do with the spectrum. Uh -huh. His blog, Adventures and Asperger's, always in the top whenever they do autism blogs and they rate them, his is always number one or number two okay. because it's amazing. All and right. he is an amazing individual. So we're going to be back with Tom Hibbins. So stick with us. find out you're having a boy you always think like oh he's gonna play football he's gonna do this and that and then when he's diagnosed all those things get washed away it's like that piece that's always in the back of your mind you know where is he what is he doing is he safe we really didn't know what we were dealing with I wish that they could have directed me a little bit more and provided me some information I was a young mom I didn't know what it was like to raise a boy despite a boy with autism
Hundreds of thousands of families are not getting the help they need for their children with autism all around the country. ACT Today is determined to bridge the gap. These families really have to go through a lot to get a grant. The application process isn't easy. The records, the diagnosis proof, they're really battling for their kids. So when we can give them a grant, it is so wonderful to see that they succeed in getting that help for their children. Our founder, Dr. Doreen Grampuche, is an amazing woman, and she is one of the world's foremost authority on behavior of children with autism. She's extremely knowledgeable, and she oversees every single grant we give. She is part of that process. People may think of autism care and treatment as simply schooling or therapy, but you know, we provide important safety supports, things like fencing, for example. The whole family's living in fear of that child running out into traffic. I recently delivered an iPad to a little boy with some of the apps that are out there for children with autism. Miracles happen. I got the iPad from Act. From Act. What yeah. did it say? Can you repeat that, Dustin? We have helped so many military families, and when I think of these brave families that are fighting two battles, one to protect our country and one for the right treatment and care for their children, it, it breaks my heart, and I think we have to do more as a nation to help them. There's not a day that doesn't go by that we don't think about it. Some people say, oh, he's normal. You don't see the battles that I see every single day. My husband does have to deploy, and when they get on that bus, that might be the last time that my kids ever see them. So I called, and then they informed me that he had received the grant, which was like a blessing from above. I was just like speechless. I just started to cry because, you know, without it, we would, we would have been lost. The ACT grant was a total miracle. Without that, they wouldn't be able to receive a service dog. So we're so appreciated what they've done for us as a family. Recently, ACT Today funded a program for military children with autism in San Diego, the Inclusion Films Program, which is run by Joey Travolta and teaches uh, kids on the autism spectrum literal filmmaking skills. They learn how to make a movie. Everybody? There you go. Got it. Okay. Everything that goes into the process of making a film goes into everyday life. So they're learning life skills, they're learning to collaborate. It was really nice to know how much they were enjoying this camp. And they're with people who are supporting them and are making them feel great about themselves and their differences and their similarities. And I get two kids that are working together and apart and together and apart. So it's an interrelationship as well as a camp and a learning experience. It's so fulfilling when I get letters. One stands out for me, a, a boy who was 14 with Asperger's, and we gave him a grant to go to a drama camp. He wrote to us and said, Dear Act Today, thank you for letting me belong for the first time in my life. These kids are remarkable. You know, we underestimate them. They're so knowledgeable, they're so capable, and we can change the life of a family, which means changing the life of a community.
Welcome back to Let's Talk Autism. We are joined right now via Skype by Tom Hibbett. He is the autism dad who is the author of the blog Adventures in Asperger's. We're doing Blogorama right now featuring blogs that are about the autism spectrum and his is an award-winning blog for a very good reason. It's, it's absolutely beautiful to look at and because he is an awesome autism dad, he's got a lot to say. So Tom, Tom Hibben, welcome back to Autism Live and to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Thank you so much. It's so fun every time I get the chance to come on and and, uh, and hang out for a while. We love to hear the dad's perspective. And so the blog is called Adventures in Asperger's. And Nancy and I'd like to know, tell us a little bit about your real life Adventures in Asperger's. What's, what's, what's featured in this blog? It is sick. It is sick. <laughs> It is, it is, it is fart jokes at three o'clock in the morning because melatonin's not working. It is, uh, it is putting our pants on backwards, like you know, early '90s rappers, and just going with it instead of instead of turning them around. <laughs> I mean, anything. Uh, we don't try, try not to sugarcoat anything, but you know, at the same time, I'm not a big proponent of uh, feel sorry for me or this is so hard. It, you know, it, it sucks sometimes, but. You know, it's it's hilarious too. So yeah, like, yeah. You know, it's great that it's great that you can help us find the humor in these situations because usually there is humor, and sometimes when you're in the middle of it and you would rather scream, sometimes if you just look at the absurdity of it all, you can laugh. And especially from a dad point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and we should give people a little bit of background. What's your family situation, and how is uh, Asperger's affecting your life? Uh, you know, it's uh, I have three sons who are uh, six, eight, and will be eleven in two weeks. It all <laughs> hurts to say, <laughs> um, but uh, and uh, it's me and my wife. Uh, my wife is stepmom to uh, my Asperger's son, who is who is about to turn eleven, and my uh, middle son, eight, who has an anxiety disorder and uh, and a speech disorder. So uh, it is. Uh, it is interesting, and a dog and a cat now. Okay, so, so basically, your wife's a saint. She is, I don't even know. I, she went from like when, years ago anyway, we've been married for quite a while, but when, when we got together, my middle son was like, you know, uh, eight months old. I was a single dad with them all the time. And she went from being a 20 something year old girl to like, hey, you want to move in with me and my kids? You know? Well, <laughs> I don't even know like why she puts up with us. And so. you're still together. So, <laughs> hey, you know what? It, it uh, definitely, these, these trials and tribulations obviously have made you stronger. Uh, yes. What, can you tell us, Tom, what your biggest challenge for the family is in dealing with Asperger's and your other child's uh, delays and, and issues? Man, it's uh, it's it's that line between ten-year-old boy and high-functioning autism. Uh, it's uh, it's trying to figure out where where to give slack and where to bop them on the head, you know, or you know, get them to do what they need to do. Especially whether school's getting harder, stuff like that, homework, and just balancing all that between what you want for them and what they're really able to do. And then pushing them past, you know, what they want to do and what they really can do. That's a huge difference, especially with my boy. So uh, that's constantly, constantly an issue that's every single day, uh, even more so than just, you know, your daily, like, let's make sure you don't stink. Sure, so. sure. Now, um, <laughs> what part, <laughs> Tom, what part of the country are you coming to us from? 
Uh, right in the middle. We are about 30 minutes outside of Oklahoma City. Okay. So not quite in the sticks, but we're like right on the edge of the sticks. Do you so. live on a farm? I noticed some hay bales and a pickup truck. We are out a little more rural, not quite that far, but mm -hmm. maybe in the next year or so. Uh, my middle one, and for a kid with, you know, an anxiety disorder, the eight-year-old, to ask for a horse and a pig, oh. it's a big deal. So I'm like, okay, let's let's do this. Let's commit. I'm like, I'm trying to convince my wife, let's buy a little bit of land. You know? yes. And, yes. and these are the adventures that you write about, all of these things, the real-life things that happen as you're dealing with these real-life issues and with the sense of humor that we see you exhibiting here. So tell us, where can people find this blog, Tom? It is adventuresandaspergers.com, and, and uh, same way on Facebook. I mean, most of the time, if you if you search Asperger's blog, uh, it's usually first on Google and stuff like that. So we're pretty easy to find, thankfully, and and as well, you know, sites like yours and and uh, and other blogs uh, like to link, and then we all share. It's uh, it's a weird little sub tech or sub community of people, you know. It's so a it's, great it's, community. Once you get into it, you're neck deep in it. Okay. You get to know everybody. Well, we're going to we're going to take a little break and when we come back, we're going to talk to you about the photography business that you were able to start and and how that's affecting your lives and also Tom's no stranger to adversity. There was a fire that happened in their home recently, not well, it's been over a year now, but we're going to talk to Tom about what that was like when you've got all these other things going on, the real life stuff. So, we'll be back with Tom after these messages. The Institute for Behavioral Training provides courses in applied behavior analysis for the treatment of autism. Access IBTE learning videos on the move and learn at your own pace. I'm going to talk a little bit about intensity. IBTE learning makes any location your classroom on the go. So our objectives for today are to really learn what autism and how is it diagnosed. Get professional guidance with IBT face-to-face -face training. IBT face-to-face -face training courses prepare you to effectively implement ABA-based interventions. Choose between small group and one-to-one -one instruction. Earn BCBA supervision hours via one-to-one -one video conferencing. So I had a chance to review your BIP today. You know what? It looked really good. You did a good job with that. IBT, continuing education courses. Earn credit through webinars, conferences, article reviews, and e-learning videos. You can learn more at iBehavioralTraining.com. IBT, 360 degrees of ABA training. We are back with Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, and we are having a great conversation with Tom Hibben, who is the blogger on Adventures in Asperger's and uh, shares his often hilarious adventures with his three sons, uh, one of whom has Asperger's syndrome and another son who has some learning delays and other issues. And Tom helps us find the humor in all this. And before we went to break, Shannon, you were asking Tom about some other adversity that he's recently had. Yeah, you know, as if all those things weren't enough, you also, your family suffered a devastating fire. It was a little over a year ago, am I correct? Just a little over a year ago, our wedding anniversary, actually. Oh. <laughs> so tell, because we haven't had you back on the show since this, tell us what happened and obviously everybody was okay except you lost a pet right uh yeah well the, you know the cat got out of the house 
and went to live on a farm. Okay. So, uh, All right. Oh, okay. So we didn't lose the cat <laughs> in the fire. The All right. Cat That's right. Good. Thank yeah. heavens. The cat went on to greener pastures. Cat has nine lives. That's right. <laughs> just, just a little bit over a year ago, um, we uh, we went out to dinner, which oh, about thirty minutes away. The kids were uh, at a church daycare that their grandmother is a director at, so they were kind of hanging out and playing. And uh, we went to uh, to out to lunch, and I got a call from. My retired firefighter grandfather, who still can't sleep without the radio on, and he's listening to it. And he says, "I think your house is on fire." And uh, I was like, I just didn't even understand. He wasn't speaking English, so it was Yiddish. So uh, I, uh, you know, we turned on our scanner because you know, too many years in EMS, I always have one on me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we could hear them breaking through the neighbors' attic, either uh, condos, uh, two-story townhomes, and we could hear them going through one attic into our home, mm -hmm. talking about how it was fully engulfed and everything was gone. And and when we pulled up, uh, the roof was gone. Uh, I'm sure you've seen pictures on the blog. Yeah. It's just it was just a complete and total loss. We the only thing salvaged was uh, we have some friends that are on the fire department. Thankfully, they were able to kind of give me a tap in the cheek and say, "Listen, where's the important stuff at?" Wow. And nice those guys pulled a cedar chest with all the pictures and birth certificates. Hmm. And it was still on fire when they carried it out. They were walking wow. Places, and it was the only thing that survived is that box. I mean, wow. it was so, but that's the only thing that wasn't replaceable. So, devastating. <laughs> so, you lost everything. You know, oftentimes I think people that aren't in the autism world don't realize that all the other problems that happen and challenges with life happen. In t on top of the autism, so yeah. um, you know, and that often, you know, it's hard enough with our challenges with our kids, but then when we have all these other real life challenges that come you know, in, you don't um, have time to, you know, mourn or grieve yourself. No. You know, the first thing through your head is how is he going to take this, or how yeah. how are we going to spin this to make it to yeah. make, okay? So, and you guys did that very successfully, and people can read some of it on the blog to hear. But you know, how is he? How is he doing now? You, obviously, you guys are completely relocated. You were yeah. able to continue with your business, which is a, a thriving photography business. Yeah, we actually had a wedding. We had all our gear at home uh, from oh. the studio because we had a wedding two days later to take pictures at, and uh, so we lost everything. But between the community coming together for us, and I mean, not even our home community, but the online and autism community, Sunday Stillwell, who everybody knows from yes. uh, you know Extreme Parenthood, set up a fund for us. Oh. Be, I mean, it took us months to get the insurance money, yeah. uh, but before that, I mean, Sunday's fund and the autism community, this blog that I'm on, you know, it's like we, $5,000, $6,000 and just people we didn't know. I had Walmart delivering stuff from people who didn't know what Walmart was in the UK. Uh, you know, like Toy Story sheets and stuff, you know. So, I mean, people like, they just restore your faith in, in people and, and they just, $5 here, $500 there. And it's just, you know, people just amaze you. So people you don't even know. Well, they do. Remarkable. They sure do. And we need to hear those stories. Absolutely, we do. We're almost out of time, Tom, but we'd love to hear from you. Any advice that you would give to other dads? Uh, take it with a grain of salt <laughs> and appreciate your wife or she will hit you. Uh, 
mean, works. this stuff is so ridiculous. I mean, that's why it makes good TV shows like Big Bang Theory and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It's like, it, it's hilarious. Just sometimes when it's frustrating, you just have to kick back and just be like, really, that just happened? I mean, so just grain of salt. Everything is step by step and, and you can't get too far ahead of yourself. Well, we love that advice, especially yeah. the be nice to your wife part. Yeah, we do. I hope uh, Reed and Jim are listening, but I don't think they are. Sorry, guys. But the sense of humor part about it is just as important, I have to Definitely. say. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Let's not take it. ourselves too seriously, yes, guys. You absolutely know? love it. Well, again, we want to encourage everybody to go to adventuresinaspergers.com. It will warm your heart. You will see beautiful pictures, and you will hear some great stories about what real life is like when you've got a life uh adventure in Asperger's and we should we we have to promote your photography business if people are in that area Tom um, and I know you said you might be doing some traveling soon how can people look at the pictures because you guys do gorgeous work well thank you there's a link on the blog but also uh, my last name Hibben H-I-B-B-E-N photography.com okay Uh, we are you know we do a lot of special needs kids and like you said uh, this year we hope to do some traveling to other cities to do special needs families that uh, maybe it's hard to get these kids to, and especially a photographer that understands how uh, to deal with the kids and and is not going to stress you out and make you, uh, you know, at a horrible experience, but you still need to capture memories. So hopefully that's coming soon. And I hope that after that, there'll be a beautiful coffee table book mm-hmm. of families that, that have autism in, the, in their families. So let's, let's push for that because you do beautiful work. Thank you. Thank well, you. thanks for joining us, Tom, and go have yourself some fun adventures. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, so we're going to come back uh, with Eric Minyak, and we're going to talk about his upcoming seminar and also about some of the challenges that parents are facing now with the school district, if they do have regional center, with regional center. So um, he's going to share some of that uh, knowledge that's going to be found in this this upcoming Because we all know that knowledge yeah. is power, and we could right. all use some power right. today, right? right? All right. So we'll be right back. My name is Rachel, my son is Kyle, he has autism. I am Kyle, I am nine years old. He's been with CARD since he was two years old, so that's about seven years. We've been really fortunate that we've seen so much change in Kyle that you would really not even realize he has autism. The front of the book has an artwork piece. Is that me? No, that's a self-portrait, that's why. I thought so. Look at you're wearing the same kind of color shirt. He had been going along with pretty main milestones. He had walked on time, he had sat on time, he was looking at me at different things and laugh, and he had about five words, and then all of a sudden he lost the words. And I would call his name, and he wouldn't look at me anymore. He all of a sudden went into his own world. I mean, I just, I just noticed, like, he slipped away from us. I got into UCLA because somebody called in sick one day and we were on her waiting list but she said oh I had a cancellation can you bring your son in today I took my son in with my mom and we had a two and a half hour appointment where they observed his behavior 
noticed they didn't have any words. He was climbing all over things and jumping off her furniture because he had no sense of fear. He couldn't actually feel very much. The doctor told me, ask for a card, you can call them. I called them and got on their waiting list. And then I started researching what ABA was. ABA with CARD was the only scientific-based research that had shown that children could improve, or now they even say recover. And my son, I think, having all this therapy early, he's gonna graduate from CARD. He's going to be able to be part of the community as a typical kid. How does it make you feel when you play the violin? It makes me a little bit calmer. Kyle, early on, he only liked um, baby food. And even at age four, he was eating baby food and he wouldn't, he, he liked lots of flavors, but he didn't like anything with the texture. So he, he wanted everything pureed. So if you can imagine as a mom, I'm up, you know, cooking carrots and then pureeing them when he couldn't just have a carrot, it was really time consuming and I could get the protein and everything into him, but he wasn't eating like a typical child. It was one year later, he, instead of eating blended bananas, he was now, you know, peeling the banana and biting into the banana. Taking a hot dog on a gluten-free bun and biting into it, I mean, that is just amazing. So that was one of the main things I came home thinking, wow, this is great. It really was a relief for me because I was doing a lot of blending. I think I went through three blenders and that's just not every mom that wants to have a regular meal and be able to have even you know, the same food with their son. So it really helped. Right now, he's on the road to recovery, we call it, and I really do think that Kyle, in a, in a year or two, will not even need assistance with therapists. He really is in a typical class, and he's at the highest level. He's in the advanced level. He's in a gate class. I don't even think anyone knows in this class he has autism because he's just there. This is a mobile. I got a very good grade on it. I got four because my teacher said that she learned a lot about Neil Armstrong. This is a drawing of Neil's first footprint on the moon. And is, is his footprint still there? Yeah, it is, and his boots. And his boots. He left his boots on the moon. He did. Everyone thinks he's very kind, and he gives hugs to everyone, so the social interaction is there. He's very intelligent. He's highest in his class, and he makes friends, and he loves to read, and he's just a part of groups when he meets people. My first trip to SeaWorld, I wrote it, but I wanted to make sure that you noticed that the sun is moving higher. What does that signify? That signifies that time is going. This is artwork in a frame. That took me a lot of work to do. I have some instruments over here. Something inspired me to make instruments. This was from last year for a fundraiser. This is the surfing pictures. So here you're going on the surfboard and did you stand up right away? Yeah I did. You did. And show us how you your stands on the surfboard. Ready? Go. And what do you what's your favorite part about surfing? The very first time I loved the wipeout. And I hope that you enjoyed me, Mom, and all of my interests and learning a little bit about me. The end.
We are back with Let's Talk Autism, and Shannon and I are now joined by a special guest, Eric Minyak. Very good. An attorney <laughs> from Newman, Aronson, and Bannerman, which is the largest and longest established law firm in California, specializing in representing children and adults with disabilities. And you have an interactive seminar coming up on February 8th. February 8th, 2014. Okay. At the Sportsman's Lodge, yeah. In California at the Sportsman's Lodge. Mm -hmm. And tell us what this seminar is about, Eric. Well, one of the great joys about working at Newman Aronson Vanneman is being the largest firm out there, you have a lot of attorneys. Right. So you have a lot of attorneys who are going to mediations, going to due process, going to IEPs. We have advocates who work with our firm. And they're all coming back with stories, the stories, because really, I mean, if I was to sum up special education law in a nutshell, it's about the stories. It's about the individuals. And so what we decided to do is put together a seminar. It's going to be broken up into three parts. The first part is um, really going to have 10 of us attorneys on stage, and we're all going to go through the process, the process that you go through with school districts from nuts to bolts, uh, from A to Z, with um, you know, how you approach the district, how you communicate with the district, how you uh, go handle yourself an IEP meeting, all of those steps all the way up through how you fight the school district. Mm -hmm. But it's really going to be a perspective based on what we see that it's happening now today in the trenches. Okay. You know, and that's important. I mean, because although as uh, we know, I mean, the law hasn't changed, mm -hmm. but in this day and age when the dollars are the dollars and, you know, I've heard school district people say to parents, which always infuriates me my job is to be the guardian of the district funds you know that's my job and I think well I thought your job was to educate people but that aside there is you know sort of different tactics that you have to take in this day and age to really document going through the process what you need to do the second part of the seminar we're gonna break out sessions I'm gonna handle the effective advocacy because that's what I do okay. hopefully effectively mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be joined by uh, a couple other attorneys, Alexis Casillas, a very young attorney with our firm who's terrific, uh, just amazing attorney, and Brian Wynn, who I've done cases with. Mm -hmm. um, we're also going to be inviting in Judy Marks, Harvey Lappin, and, and Connie Lappin. And mm -hmm. these people are instrumental in getting the legislature in California to pass the self-determination law, which is basically saying for regional center, now you have control over your service dollars. Mm -hmm. And they're going to talk about, you know, a little bit about the history, about what went into that. But most of all, again, this is a nuts and bolts seminar. This is going to be how you now handle this uh, aspect of getting services from regional centers. And then finally, we're also going to deal with, which we sort of have a group of people who specialized in this in transitions. Because, you know, although transitions in the IEP world happen, you know, at high school and what's going to happen beyond high school, in reality, transitions happens all all along. And as you know, dealing with kids with autism, what is one of the most difficult things for these kids to deal with? Transitions. And so it becomes almost crucial as you go through the process to understand that. And then I'll, we finally, we've invited a law professor from Ohio State University, mm -hmm. Ruth Coker. And what I really liked about Professor Coker when I read her book, she wrote this book, Disabled Education. And it's a survey of all the administrative law decisions across the country and kind of goes through how the IDEA, the law under which we practice for special education, has been effective in certain areas, not effective in other areas, and why, you know, from our perspective, certainly from the parents' bar perspective, why these cases seem so biased against parents. And Professor Coker is actually the parent 
of a disabled child. She has a child with autism and um, and has written several books okay. on these issues. So her, her work is out there to be read. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us how people can learn about this. Where can they register? At our website, www.navwa.net. We have a big banner, hopefully, there that will say register for... There it is. Yeah. Okay, there you go. There's a big banner on the website that okay. says, you know, register here. And, you know, one of the things that we, it, it, for me, you know, we're going to have advocates there, we're going to have attorneys mm -hmm. there. It's really important that this seminar reach the parents. Right. So one of the things that I would like to do is offer for viewers of this show mm -hmm. is free admission. Okay. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> I would really like to because do that. Because it's a $100 admission. It was. What we said, and I said, this is uh, an impetus from Valerie, but uh, from everyone at the firm, they were saying, you know what, we need to get the word out there. Right. And so we were. We were getting the word out there. We were getting attendance, but from, you know, a certain population. Sure. We really want a diverse population. Yes. And people really need this information. Right. So for people who are watching this, if they go on and they'll see a code and it says uh, enter your know, promotion code or whatever, and I believe it is, <laughs> now I'm going to be wrong, I have to call in, but uh, NAVSHIP, N-A-V, all caps, capital S-H-I-P, okay. NAVSHIP. Okay, great okay. information. All right, we're going to come back, talk a little bit more about these issues for maybe some of the people that cannot attend this, some of the challenges oh, that are facing us that absolutely. are great, but not impossible. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So we'll absolutely. be right back. Okay. Hi, I'm Bryce Myler and I'm the Contracts Director for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. I've been here for about five years. CARD has several employees with many years of insurance experience uh, dealing with insurance, dealing with pre-authorizations, dealing with discovering whether there's coverage or not. So we have more experience than any ABA provider that I've ever come across. So for, for a prospective client, somebody that may be interested in you know ABA therapy and what CARD has to offer, we have a special 800 number um, and you call that number. They will talk to you about what we have to offer, uh, how ABA works, they'll ask you for the front and back of your ID card and then we check to see if you do or do not have coverage. If you have coverage for ABA therapy, we try to do whatever we can to set it up where we can bill for you and you don't have to fight with the insurance company every month to get your claims paid. For California residents, we recently did a series of insurance trainings all over the state and you can click on the link below to watch pretty much the full presentation. It has a lot of information how you can get your insurance company to to comply with what they're supposed to do, uh, understanding the networks and many other um, valuable pieces of information. fun talking here. We're back with Eric Mignette, and we all love to talk, the three of us. So yes. we've been talking about their upcoming seminar on February 8th, uh, Current Issues, School Districts and Regional Centers. And now we want to cover some issues that, in case you can't make it to this seminar, um, Eric says there are many challenges that, pa that parents are facing now that are great but not impossible. So one of those, we wanted to know, you said how Rowley needs to be re-examined. The floor of opportunity has become a goal, not an actual floor. What is Rowley and why does it need to be re-examined? Great question. Rowley is a, a Supreme Court case that happened, I believe, in the 1980s. Um, uh, dealt with a kindergarten girl, Ann Rowley, who was deaf. Okay. And parents were asking for a sign language uh, interpreter in her kindergarten class. And this is, you know, one of those cases lawyers like to talk about bad facts make bad law. Mm -hmm. 
And in this case, at least from a parent's perspective, there's some bad facts here, which is you had a really good school district. Mm -hmm. You had a school district who had actually tried a sign language interpreter in kindergarten, and Ann Rowley, being a kindergarten student, she didn't really pay much attention, you know, and she could communicate by other means, mm -hmm. especially at that age. Um, and so what ended up happening is you ended up with this Board of Education v. Rally that went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, look, you, uh, a school district's responsibility is not to give the best education possible. It's not to maximize the education possible. And you've all heard this before. Yes, we have. And this is, just now you know where it comes is from. the word. This is, well, free appropriate public education is public, is part of the statute. Okay. But this whole notion that we don't have to maximize education, mm -hmm. this is all from Rowley. Okay. And, um, and so they said what the school district is responsible for is providing a floor of opportunity. Well, once you tell a school district that all you're responsible for is providing this floor of opportunity, what we've seen, especially recently, as funds become more scarce, is that floor gets a little bit lower, you know, and school districts are now trying to reach the floor. And if they don't quite reach it, then the floor drops a little. And this has happened in, we've seen this uh, from school districts fighting harder. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen this from administrative law judges that are supposed to be protecting the rights of disabled children. And they, you know, I cannot tell you how many mediations I've been at where I hear a parent, a parent I'm sitting with will say, you know, look, I just, I, I want what, what's you know, best for my child. And the judge will say, well, I understand that. But the law only provides for the floor of opportunity and that's a these, very odd term though to interpret isn't it the it, one, floor well, this of is opportunity a very hard term and so and the, you get i mean you're dancing on the head of a pin here which is what lawyers love to do and i personally hate it my perspective of i got into this law from other areas of law because this is a human area of law we're dealing with children we're dealing with kids that need an education, kids that need services from regional centers. And the issue is, how do we serve these children? Yes, I understand. We don't have to. School districts are not required to turn every child into Albert Einstein. If they could, that would be great. Um, but that's not their responsibility. But to then go back, which you know I feel we've done, and say, look, we're, we're struggling here to give the kids the basic floor of opportunity and so you know i have cases where i'll show up with a kid he's uh and i call these all my children kids so i hope you don't mind but um yeah. uh where they show up and they're you know they're uh very high iq for whatever that's worth you know very smart um but not getting it for whatever reasons yeah. whether it's you know auditory processing visual mm -hmm. processing mm -hmm. they're on the special whatever not reason, having the appropriate behavioral intervention yeah not having to the access learning all of that yeah. all of that goes into place mm -hmm. and yet because they're not failing out right. because they have good parents who are getting them to school because a lot of times these kids end up just not even wanting to go to school sure. um because of all that, that's okay, that's sufficient, that's appropriate, right. you know? And then uh, one of the offshoots of this is that you end up with these IEP documents, that's an individualized education program, yes. which sort of outlines the education for these children, you know, what their present levels of performance are, what the goals and objectives for the future are, what services and what placement. You get these sort of standardized goals that teachers will come in and they will testify under oath right. that this student's making progress. Right. I have a 10th grader who is a gifted student in fourth grade who is now failing in 10th grade and the school district is saying, well, he hasn't failed. Right. 
and that's perfectly fine. So all of this, you know, great information, but what do we do about it? <laughs> right, right. How can parents better protect their children's rights? What can parents do? You know, and I, I have a kind of a personally unique view of this because mm -hmm. I truly believe that parents are, always will be, the best advocates mm -hmm. for their children. Mm -hmm. Now, what is hard is taking out the anger and frustration and all of that from the equation. I get very passionate about these these kids. I, I adore them, and it seems to be reprehensible that we as a society are not giving them what they need. That said, when I go into mediation, when I go into an IEP or anything like that, I'm really trying hard to suss out the relationship with the people there. I think it is really important that parents know going into these meetings that you're dealing with educators and they have to deal with all sorts of parents. They have to deal with the, really the, who was the helicopter mom you said yes. earlier, but the super helicopter mom who comes into school, you know, with their kid and all yeah. this other stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and who's t trying to t tell the teacher how to teach their class and it's very frustrating for them. Mm -hmm. They also are subject to this cost cutting. Yes. So they're having to do more with less. Larger class sizes, uh, less materials, less resources. So what I tell parents is when you go into meet with them, at least try mm -hmm. <laughs> to realize that these are other human beings across mm -hmm. the table mm -hmm. from you. They may not, and this oftentimes our parents say to me all the time, they don't get my child, they don't mm -hmm. get my child. Mm -hmm. I said, I understand that, and you, you may be right, but then it's your job to teach them okay. who your child is. Okay. And the other thing I will say is nothing takes place in special education if it isn't written down. Mm -hmm. You want to so document everything. So yeah. you're saying parents, you have here document, document, document. Right. What kinds of things do parents need to document? Uh, when you communicate, uh, what I often will tell my clients is if you're having issues at school, write what those issues are, just list them, you know, no attacking people right, just list right. what the issues are remember this is about your child right and send that off to the teacher okay so immediately instead of letting time wait oh no your child is having a problem accessing let's say the the math curriculum right and they're not keeping up too much homework's coming home they're swamped they should in you're advising that they immediately contact the teacher should they let the principal know or just the te i mean at, at first the risk you always run in this is you know going over people's heads right so right. what you want to do is and you don't here's what i also tell people don't like uh, mug your teacher, uh -huh. your child's teacher. Uh -huh. You know, don't uh -huh. find them when they're running around with kids. Right. And say, excuse me, I need to talk to you. Yes. Right. Um, I think it's also, and like I said, much better when you document anyway, is, you know, give them a chance to reply. If they don't reply, then, you know, two days, three days later, let the principal know, hey, I understand you're really busy. Yeah. But yeah. I really need an answer on this. But you're, so, you're saying try not to be so adversarial. Try to be conciliatory. Try and be more of an ambassador yes, to the school. And, absolutely. And really try to work with them so you can at least establish that you've tried to work with them. Right. And document the fact that you've tried to work with and them. And I appreciate that because I think a lot of times I tend to be the parent who wants to go and talk to the teacher at the gate after everybody has left. Mm -hmm. But then when you go back over something and I, you know, my teachers at my son's school are great, but later on when I'm trying to explain to somebody what well, we talked about this, it would probably be better for the teacher and it would be much better for my child and for my case if I had just sent an email. And then I can go back yes. over the thread and say, here's what we've already established. Mm -hmm. it, it gives you protection. 
protection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It gives you protection. It also, as you said, it provides a roadmap for mm -hmm. you, for the teachers, for the school district, for everyone. And, you know, a lot of times when you, by the time parents get to me, a lot of times these communications have broken down yeah. because there's a lot of animosity, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, and you know, part of my job, at least as I see it, is to bridge that gap because I come in, no matter what I do, if I go to mediation, if I go to a hearing, if I go to federal court even, your child is still in the school system. Mm -hmm. You still have to work with these yeah. people. Yes, you don't want to have a situation where you're really at war with one another after the issues have been resolved. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nor do you want an issue, even, I mean, even if, you know, because it, it, this is a yearly process. IEPs mm -hmm. happen every year. Yeah. We have, unfortunately, a lot of repeat customers mm -hmm. um, who come back in. And, um, you know, the issue is that every time it becomes a, like a different, it's about a different matter. It's about a different struggle. Your child has grown up. The facts have changed, yeah. and yet you don't have, if you don't have that road map, you don't see where he came from or she came from and where he or she is going, okay. and that's important. Where are you on tape recorders? Do you recommend? Definitely. Okay, awesome, because <laughs> I'm that way about it too, but I'd love to hear always from our lawyer, you know, yeah. whenever we talk to a lawyer, we're all about, because a lot of parents think, well, if I come in and I ask for the tape recorder, they're going to think I'm adversarial and that that might be a bad thing. Yes, and I, I, when I, I would say three or four years ago, if I was dealing with a sort of a, a, an okay situation, I'd say, you know, you don't have to. Uh -huh. Now I tell all my parents to tape record everything. And I think, to your point about being adversarial, there are actually two issues I'll say about that. You know, I went to IEPs for my son for years. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I never went without an advocate. Okay. Me, who does this, never went without an advocate because there's so many emotions involved sure. and I need a check. Right. Uh, I need a check on me. Having said that, I think there is real value in not having an advocate or not having an attorney there. And that's why I used to say... Well, and so and not, many parents, quite frankly, let's face it, don't have the resources. Right. At least Absolutely. in that first meeting, you know, yeah. when you're trying to see if you can work it out right. in the first one. Right. Later on, sometimes you just have to, you know, you have to cash in that bond that grandma <laughs> gave you right. or whatever because you go, now we've got a kitchen fire and we got to right. have somebody to right. help us. But in that first meeting, a lot of times you don't have the choice. You don't. And, and you know, to give parents a little comfort, honestly, when you bring an attorney to an IEP meeting, it's a different meeting. Yeah. I mean, because they'll probably bring their attorney to the of meeting, course. and then yeah. it becomes sort of a, a more of an yeah. adversarial. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, they 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 say we're gearing up for a fight here. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so the real and the reality is that very little can take place at an at an IEP meeting that cannot be remedied afterwards. Okay. You know, obviously, you don't want to. Uh, say anything outrageous or you right. certainly don't want to agree to anything in writing mm -hmm. right but just showing up and talking to people um is you know i i find that for me afterwards dealing with it that i end up with a lot of good material because the school district feels much more free okay so you know what i think you know johnny would actually be better off with a private speech therapist because of his issues mm -hmm. But you didn't hear that from me. Right. But mm -hmm. if it's on the tape recorder, <laughs> right. you sure right. did. Right. Exactly. Right. So, right. yeah. So, um, and, and they certainly would never have said that if an attorney was there. Okay. Good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good so, point. And the, the whole purpose of this law, ostensibly, was to be non-adversarial. Mm -hmm. And um, which 
has sort of gone by the wayside now. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, we really, we really are living in a uh, an era of limited services. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to just touch on regional centers for a minute, and yeah. you know, we are an international broadcast, so yes. uh, podcast. So a lot of uh, the families that are listening, and a lot of our viewers don't have regional center services. But for those that do, uh, what have been some of the biggest issues now with the regional center? Well, as I, I mean, as I said, right now the big issue, of course, is this passage of the self-determination law, mm -hmm. which will be taking effect and, over the year. Can you just explain the self-determination law is what? I, I will not profess to be a, an expert okay. in this, but this is my understanding, is that the way it worked usually with regional centers, they ventured with certain providers. Mm -hmm. So if you went to the regional center and they said, for example, you need ABA services, mm -hmm. they can pick from their vendored uh, uh companies right. and determine who your son will see. Okay. And what the self-determination dollars do in a nutshell is mm -hmm. basically give you, we will provide these services at this rate, you go out and you find the provider. Now the provider has to meet certain criteria, sure. but it is your uh, uh, determination as to what that provider is. And to a certain extent, what service is going to be provided because, mm -hmm. you know, as, as they often say, I mean, you can get six parents of kids with autism in a room and all six are getting different therapies, different okay, services, so, et cetera. So the way I interpret this is then, so let's say regional center, they assess your child on the autism spectrum where we're giving you this many hours a week of ABA, then that the parent can then go and say, well, I want card to provide that ABA. ABA. Treatment. Uh, treatment. Right. And th that's what this is basically in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, they said regional center is kind of a, from a, gone from an HMO to a, a, a PBO. Yeah, right. that's right. Okay. That's, that's ah, kind of it. See, I never knew what that really was. So, so that's that is. And, and again, I don't profess to be an expert on this, just right, so you know. Right. So that's but you are going to have an expert at this we seminar. And yes. the Lapins, yeah. Connie Lapin, you know, was really a pioneer in this oh, area. We, huge. We need to get her on this show. But um, yes. yeah, so she, a huge pioneer in this. and and parents can really learn about yeah. this. And she's a great presenter and she yeah. does a really good, she puts on a really good show. Okay. So good. it's all good. 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 So it's all good. And so there'll be more discussion about that, but that's one of the big things uh, that going on right now. But one of the other things we wanted to talk to you about is this idea that districts are developing programs that look good on paper, right. but they really aren't. And for parents, this is so disheartening. This is sort of a situation that I personally have found my son and that what and and my husband and i were rather naive in the beginning of the iep process which started with the preschool with the public school you know at the iep it all sounded so beautiful but then in reality what we found was not beautiful at all was our son being placed in a special resource room with children that were lower functioning right. him coming home emulating behaviors and and lots of regression going on so you're promised one thing and it sounds beautiful and you're in the Doesn't room it? yeah and then six months later you go what's happening with my child so what what can we do about this and it was interesting because i guess earlier you had on uh, you were, i guess it was a pre-tape thing about my son can't tell me what's going on at school. Yeah, yeah. Mommy, I wish I could tell you what happened to me at school today. That is so important, and I cannot tell you how many parents come to me and say, you know, well, I, I don't know. He's, he seems to be exhibiting all these behaviors right. he's never had before. Yes. And I said, well, what is going on? Well, you look at the IEP. It's a really good IEP. He's getting one-on-one -on -one aid. He's got behavioral aid. He's got supervision. He's got speech. He's got all of this. But when you go and observe, well, he may or may not right. be having a one-on-one -on -one aid. That aid may be dealing with 
the lower functioning child uh, across the room. Right. Um, he may or may not be getting the speech services uh, that are on the IEP. Right. There may be a speech therapist coming in who's logging her time, but she's basically working with five kids with an iPad pointing to things. Right. And this is obviously stories I'm telling you from experience. Yes. Right. This is not, so you have kids who are nonverbal working with kids who are verbal and they're just pointing at, where's the fruit? Where's so, the apple? And so you're saying that the parents need to go in and observe? They need to. They need to go in and observe, and even better, and this is an unfortunate aspect of this area of law, is that um, the Supreme Court, aside from morality, the other case that needs to be overturned is Arlington, because that said that uh, parents are responsible for their own expert fees. So. It, it becomes very difficult yeah. to get someone to go in who knows what to look for and to be able to say, you know, this is really not. So even better would be maybe your child's behaviorist at the supervisor, which uh, in my case we have done. We have right. had the, the ABA supervisor go in, observe what implementations were being, you know, what what uh, the plan was, and it was totally inappropriate in right. the case of my son. Right. So. Unfortunately, we, we are like so out of time. I'm and so I wanna, sorry. And yeah. I want to, I am too, because we're having such a great conversation, but I want to leave time for you to talk about where people can access information about the, your law firm and this seminar that you're doing. Okay. We are at, sorry, uh, www, no one says that anymore. We are at navlaw.net, N-A-V-L-A-W.net. Mm -hmm. They can call in and also, just so you know, we, uh, we will hear, we're very busy, but we, we work for parents. Every attorney on this list is really parent-focused. It's right. a great firm. And so if you feel like a little shy about calling an attorney, right. what's it going to cost me? Right. Call in because okay. we have plans for everyone. And can I just interject everyone. here that one of the best uses, you know, I am executive director of ACT Today, Autism Care and T Treatment Today. And one of the things we will fund is advocates and attorneys. A lot of people don't know this. Um, if you do That's have right. a case, go to our website, act-today.org. Go to the grant application. If you have a particularly dire case where you really feel you need an attorney, please go to ACT Today, apply for a grant. I think it's one of the best uses of our funds. We have had miracles happen with yeah. some of our kids who have had just terrible, terrible services, and then we've gotten them great services through an attorney, attorney. advocate. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll tell you, I mean, and, I, and I just, it's not just New and Ernst and Vanham, of course, I think we're the best, but, right. <laughs> but most parent attorneys, if you have gotten into this because they either have a son, you know, we were talking about Bonnie Yates, right. a very talented yes. uh, woman, yes. has a son who's on the spectrum. We all have or know someone on the spectrum or has a disability. We're there for the kids. So okay. if, we, if we can help you, if we can help you make it work. The That's funds right. are right. remarkable. Right. We are, right. out, of we are out of time. I will let you know that we're back tomorrow yes. at 10 a.m. Uh, for a live show. We'll have Dr. Jonathan Tarbox with us. We'll have Dr. Adele Nadowski. And we will also have a wonderful blogger who will be with us okay. as well. And I'll see you next week. Yes, thank you and so much. And thank you to Eric. Thank sure. you, Eric. And thank you all. And as you always and say. Give your kiddos a hug from me. And give yourselves a hug from me. Bye-bye for now. Bye.